Hello, and welcome back to the 46 Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Ben Link, the president of 46 Brooklyn Research, but I'm also a pharmacist fed up with fake artificially inflated drug prices. On the last episode of our podcast, we used the drug pricing benchmarks we previously talked about to evaluate the cost of a single drug through the U.S. drug supply chain from the manufacturer all the way to the health plan. This was possible thanks to the transparency offered to us through the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company and their product, Albendazole. And what we saw could reasonably be described as drug pricing dysfunction, where because we cannot agree on what price even is, the price we were experiencing from albendazole was much higher than it would be if we all just took a cost plus approach to paying for drugs throughout the drug supply chain. Furthermore, we saw that when the supply chain was presented a low cost option, i.e. albendazole from this new Mark Cuban source, it didn't move to use it. Ultimately, because even following the price of a drug from start to finish wasn't enough to see why the supply chain is acting the way it is, we reached the topic of today's episode, which is going to be exploring how financing for prescription drug benefits in the United States is actually handled. But before we dive in, let me provide some reminders about this podcast. The goal of the 46 Brooklyn podcast is to introduce the core concepts of the U.S. drug supply chain to hopefully foster a better understanding of the data available at 46brooklyn.com and our drug pricing system as a whole. As with any educational endeavor, I've attempted to present the information in a logical manner to hopefully ease understanding. However, I want to recognize and acknowledge that everybody learns differently. To that end, if you have questions or comments regarding these materials, please reach out to us on our website. So with the typical boilerplate out of the way, let's get into today's topic by reviewing what we already know. If you've listened to this podcast before, you would have heard me make reference to the fact that people get drug benefits in a variety of ways in this country. This is because the United States does not have what is known as a universal payer healthcare system. Rather, people can get access to benefits through their employer in what is known as employer-sponsored health plans when they reach a certain age through the Medicare program or through qualifying for assistance to get healthcare coverage through programs like Medicaid. Additionally, people may buy healthcare coverage directly through the healthcare marketplace established by the Affordable Care Act. And while these represent some of the most common ways people get access to healthcare, there are still other ways people may get access to healthcare coverage, such as workers' compensation coverage. We cannot reasonably talk about all these sources of drug coverage on today's episode. Rather, we're going to focus in on the most common way people get any healthcare coverage, the employer-sponsored health plan. On later episodes, it'll almost certainly make sense for us to revisit how Medicare and Medicaid are financed, but we simply don't have the time to get into that today because they're pretty different from the way employer-sponsored health plans work. So 
how do employer-sponsored health plans work to provide prescription drug benefits to all of us? Well, first, it starts by us getting a job that offers health insurance. Note that it isn't necessarily a requirement that a company actually do that. It can depend upon their size in terms of whether or not they're going to offer health insurance. But generally speaking, if a company wants to hire the best talent, they'll almost certainly want to offer health insurance. Again, according to the statistics in this area, this is how most of us in the United States are actually going to get health care coverage. According to research conducted at the federal level within the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, or BLS, 71% of private industry employers offered health care benefits to their employees in 2021. Mechanically, though, how we actually get insurance with our employer can vary job to job. Some employers require you to work on the job for a certain length of time before getting access to the health care benefit. In general, employers can make employees wait up to 90 days before their ability to access the health care benefit actually begins. And again, this is if they even offer health care as a benefit to start with. Alternatively, other employers will give you access to healthcare on day one. But again, the point is the variability in experience, job to job, employer to employer. Either way, once the benefit is actually available, the benefit structure may also be highly variable from company to company. This is for a multitude of reasons. First is the type of plans the company is offering. Some companies only have one healthcare option. Others will give you a choice. You can pick, say, a health maintenance organization, an HMO plan, a preferred provider organization, a PPO plan, a point of service known as a POS plan, or even a high deductible plan with a savings option known as an HDHP. There are even exclusive provider organizations or EPOs that might be offered as a plan. Of course, very few of us are well positioned to select our own healthcare plan. For example, in a study conducted by the government on how Medicare beneficiaries select their plan, which isn't exactly equivalent to employer-sponsored health plans, but it's close enough for the point I want to make, when Medicare beneficiaries are selecting their plan, about half the time they select a plan that costs them more money than it needs to, meaning that if they'd shopped better, they could have saved money or obtained drug coverage with a better overall value proposition for themselves. It's kind of like when the IRS tells us, hey, we know how much you owe us in taxes, but why don't you fill out these forms and we'll tell you if you got it right. That's kind of what's happening here. Why then is this the way we're buying health insurance? But I digress. Note that even when the same kind of plan option exists, such as, say, an HMO offered at employer one and employer two, the amount of money a person may pay within an HMO may be highly variable. This is because each HMO may offer different premiums, deductibles, and cost-sharing amounts from one HMO to the next. What this ultimately means is that even when an employer offers health insurance, it may still be out of reach or unaffordable for their employees to actually buy into the plan or plans being offered. According again to the BLS data, 
only 54% of employees are actually participating in the benefit offered by their employer. Just over half of us are using what is effectively our only protection against possible medical debt, which might send us into bankruptcy. And to be clear, this doesn't necessarily mean it's a affordability issue because if say you and your spouse are both offered health insurance at different employers, you really probably only need to select one of those options. But nonetheless, there is some affordability challenges with healthcare in general. But before we can understand why all of this variability exists, we need to take a step back and review how employers are actually making the healthcare selections for their employees. It starts with a decision to be either fully insured, self-funded, or level funding the plan you're going to offer. Each of these terms describes the amount of financial risk the company will take on in providing healthcare to its employees and can help explain why they may offer some of the various types of health plans we previously discussed and not others. So let's start with what I hope is the easiest to understand, but want to acknowledge up front is not the most common way benefits are funded. Insurance is always about hedging financial risk, whether it's your house, your car, or your health plan. You're trying to manage those incredible risks that you could come across in life. For an employer, especially those of a smaller size, there is a need to pool employees' experiences, disease states, and care that they need with that of many other employers. These types of employers pay health plans to assume the financial risk associated with their members. They do this in the form of a premium they pay above and beyond premium amounts individuals may also be asked to pay as part of a fully funded benefits program. In other words, the employer is shifting its financial risk to provide healthcare via a premium payment, just like we all do with, say, our monthly car insurance. Generally speaking, the employer in these arrangements is giving up its ability to choose plan benefit design. The health plan that is providing the benefit will perform some assessments, quantify the risks it sees to provide coverage to the group of employees, and design the healthcare benefit that they want based upon what the employer's premium dollars are buying. What this means is that if the employer pays more in premium, they get better benefits for their employees. But that also ties up more of the employer's money, meaning that they may not have money to pay higher salaries, hire more employees, or provide other benefits like dental or vision. But as I stated up front, this is not the most common way employers choose to sponsor their health benefits. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 67% of us workers are covered by employers that are choosing to self-fund their insurance. These employers are taking on the financial risks themselves to provide health insurance by not paying the premium to have the health plan do everything and design a benefits plan. We can begin to hopefully see, once we understand how employers are financing healthcare behind the scenes, some of the incentives they might make in selecting plan design parameters. For example, if you're a self-insuring uh, company for your health plan, 
you may choose plan design features that shift more of the cost of healthcare onto your employees as a way to reduce the business's financial risks. Hence why one of the things that is often brought up during the public disclosure of union negotiations, say, is that the unions are disputing with their employers not only the salary component of their employment, but also the health care benefits. And it's not uncommon to hear unions say that they made sacrifices in terms of their salary ask to secure better health care benefits. Again, the pots of money the employer has to effectively manage salary and benefits is the same pot of money within the business when they're self-funding the benefit. The last way that businesses finance healthcare is through a mixture of the prior two with elements of self-funding and full insurance. How does this work? Well, in a level-funded plan, the employer is going to be self-funded for the most part but will buy a special policy for what we'll call catastrophic claims. That is, they'll shift their financial liabilities for claims that end up costing more than, say, a million dollars in the aggregate, or as starting to become the norm, more than $2 million. What that means is that when the expenses are incurred, they are kept track of in a running tally. Basically, each employee's file has a running tally of healthcare expenditures, and once it reaches the threshold of the policy, i.e. that million dollars, the employer is no longer responsible for self-funding the healthcare claims. Rather, the insurance agency that the employer bought into is now funding those catastrophic claims. Certain changes in benefit design may be required in order to have such a policy. And so the employer is giving up a little bit of its freedom in benefit design to purchase these policies. But taking a step back, they ultimately make sense when some drugs alone carry a $2 million price tag. I'm looking at you, Zolgensma. If all of this information sounds complicated, I assure you it is. Employers are, generally speaking, not experts in healthcare. Even the smartest employers in their field, like, I don't know, SpaceX, a company filled with literal rocket scientists, likely isn't managing these healthcare decisions by themselves. Rather, they hire companies, consultants often referred to as benefit brokers, to help them make healthcare coverage decisions, including running the numbers on whether it makes sense to be fully insured or self-insured. These benefit brokers are likely a topic for another day, so let's review. First, an employer has to decide whether healthcare is a benefit it even wants to offer or not. Assuming they do want to offer it, the next step likely involves hiring a benefit broker who helps the employer make a decision on how it's going to finance the provision of healthcare. I should probably have mentioned earlier, but note that sometimes an employer might want to be fully self-insured, for example, but cannot because either state rules say they're not large enough to carry that financial risk or the various health care plans they'd want to partner with won't work with them on a self-insured basis because they, again, identify the risk as too great. Anyway, now that we have figured out how the financing of healthcare will be handled by the employer, it's time to choose an overall structure for 
healthcare benefits? Will we select an HMO or a PPO? Will the plan have co-payments or co-insurance or both? How large of a deductible will the plan require? What kind of premiums will members be asked to pay in addition to what the employer is already paying? If all of these sounds if all of these terms sound confusing, I'd remind our listeners that we have a glossary of healthcare terms on our website, 46brooklyn.com. We don't have time in today's conversation to review premiums or deductibles as concepts, as I want to really dive into the overall plan structure options, so let's do that. One of the plans an employer may select is known as an HMO. HMOs require patients to choose doctors within their network. When you sign up for the plan, you'll select a primary care physician, or PCP, whom you'll see for your regular checkups. In selecting this person, however, you're creating a sort of gatekeeper for managing your care. This is because they'll need to give you a referral before you can see a specialist, like say an oncologist or physical therapist. Because of the control PCPs offer, HMOs can control healthcare costs by networking with doctors whom they incentivize to otherwise, because of the control the PCP offers, HMOs can control healthcare costs by networking with doctors whom they create incentives for or otherwise analyze as being cost effective. The financial risk is managed through the PCP relationship with the HMO from the employer's perspective. An alternative plan design to the HMO that an employer may select is the point of service or POS plan. This type of plan design also requires that you get a referral from your primary care physician before seeing a specialist. But for a slightly higher premium than the HMO, this plan also, generally speaking, covers out-of-network doctors. Of course, the use of out-of-network doctors will shift additional costs onto the employee in a manner that's generally speaking to the order of how much more those out-of-network costs are relative to the in-network rate. However, more plan designs exist than just HMOs or POS plans. In an exclusive provider organization, or EPO, you, as an employee, are only covered for in-network care, but the network is, generally speaking, larger than the HMO. What does this mean in practice? Well, what if you're in an HMO and you're traveling in another state for vacation? You like to take vacation when you can, right? Well, your vacation gets ruined because you cut yourself deep enough to need stitches doing something you probably were too old to do at this point in your life. Well, you have a limited network with the HMO and your primary care physician isn't there to refer you. And so you're stuck with a potential out of network charge that you're going to be fully responsible for. It's possible that with the expanded network of say an EPO option, you may still have someone here that could provide the service, i.e. those stitches you need in network at a lower cost. Note that the EPO plan structure may or may not require referrals from your primary care physician. And this was just part of the example I'm giving because the broader network that is offered generally means that employers are reducing some of their best cost control mechanisms. And ultimately this means that premiums for the uh, EPO plan are generally higher than HMOs. And believe it or not, I still have two more benefit designs I want to talk about. Is it any wonder that we are so bad potentially at choosing our healthcare options? Well, the fact is that I do have two more that we need to talk about. 
In contrast to what we've discussed thus far, an employer may design a benefit in what's known as a preferred provider organization or PPO. This type of benefit generally has higher and pricier premiums than an HMO or a POS plan. Why? Well, this plan allows you to see specialists and out-of-network doctors without a referral. Copays and coinsurance for in-network doctors are generally lower in the PPO as a way to incentivize their use as opposed to the out-of-network use. The last type of plan to talk about is known as the high deductible health plan. In a high deductible health plan, we're trading lower premium costs on a month over month basis for higher out of pocket costs as we use healthcare services. Employers often pair high deductible health plans with a health savings account or HSA, which they may be able to fund to help cover some of these higher costs. With HSAs, you can deposit pre-tax dollars into an account to help cover your healthcare expenses, saving you about 30% given the reduced tax liability. And so with all of these various ways of providing health insurance benefits, what do we know about what employers are actually doing in the real world? Well, again, Kaiser Family Foundation comes to the rescue with data and generally speaking, 75% of all employers are offering only one type of plan which when you consider that most of them are taking the financial risks in offering benefits via a self-insured nature, it makes sense that most are choosing to give their workforce only one choice as it helps them better control their risks. Of course, for consumers, one choice of anything sucks. Hence why perhaps so many of us are unhappy with the insurance options in this country. When it comes to the types of plans offered, overwhelmingly we're getting access to PPOs as they represent 54% of the plans offered when firms are only offering that one type of benefit, which again is the most common scenario. The next most common plan design is the high deductible health plan at 26% of offered choices, followed by the POS at 14% and HMOs at 5%. I think it's fair to say that reading the tea leaves, so to speak, we can assume that this means that PPOs and high deductible health plans offer the greatest cost controls to employers. In turn, this also probably means they result in the most liability or cost risk to consumers of healthcare, i.e. the rest of us. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today's conversation. On the next episode, we'll review some of the early drug pricing trend data we have for the year that is 2022. And as always, I want to thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. The 46 Brooklyn podcast would like to thank McGowan Braybender for the use of their facilities in recording our podcast. We'd also like to thank Ben at Journeyman Productions for assistance with our music and sound. As a reminder to our listeners, if you're curious about any of the materials discussed on today's episode, additional information can always be found on 46brooklyn.com.